Hey guys. Hey Nick. How's it going? Nice to meet you. You too. There's there's Brandon. Thanks for joining. What's up, guys? I'm I'm really excited to um to kind of dive in on ordinals. I don't I don't know a ton about your guys' background. Maybe just uh, start with that. Yes, yeah, so I'm the CEO of Luxor Technology. If you Google Luxor, most likely you'll find something about Bitcoin mining pools. Um, that's what we're known for. Um, and we build all sorts of different software services for Bitcoin miners. Uh, and that's like how I came up. Uh, of course, ordinals use Bitcoin block space. And so early on was very, very interested in uh, how that game was going to be played out uh, on chain and in the mempool. Uh, and it certainly has been very interesting. It's been by far the most interesting year in Bitcoin mining um, that I can recall. Uh, and now we're headed into the halving with this new fungible token protocol called Runes coming. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's about to get even more wild. Um, Brandon. Yeah. So I'm, um, I'm a VP on the mining team at galaxy. So we, we are self miners and we, uh, we mine for our own account. Uh, we have a large site in, in Texas called Helios. And, uh, we also run a hosting business as well. And, uh, we also do provide uh, minor financial services. So, um, we do things like provide treasury management solutions. We've done minor finance in the past. So like ASIC back finance. And my role specifically on the team is to cover mining research, um, as well as I do special projects. So I worked on some mining venture related projects and then also help with, um, some strategy related initiatives as well for the team. But, uh, my foray into sort of ordinals here was, um, we wrote, uh, a early research report. So. I got super interested in, in in ordinals just because of the fee activity and, and what it potentially meant for fee revenue um, as a as a Bitcoin miner, and really dug in um, from that perspective and and saw that you know there were a lot of amazing things happening and that this was going to be a pretty big deal, um, and so stuck pretty close to it. Um, have been an active collector in the space and uh, at being a Galaxy, we've written two reports sort of uh, covering the activity and uh, providing some perspective on, you know, what it's meant for, for other Bitcoin miners in the space. Awesome. Well, I, I think our audience is mostly ETH, uh, kind of native people. Um, I don't know how much they know about Bitcoin. For me, just so you guys know a little bit about me, I, I got into the space in 2018 and my first love was Bitcoin. I like just learning about it. Like I was watching, um, what was his first name? Andreas. Yeah. Andreas. Yeah. Watching his videos and like just geeking out and all this stuff and it's actually really cool to have this podcast today because I, I still have like a ton of questions. And obviously, you guys know a lot about Bitcoin, and I don't. I mean, I know a little bit about it, but uh, I would love to kind of educate our audience. Um, probably, we need to assume they know like a little, but not too much about Bitcoin. Um, it's mostly NFT related podcasts, so like you know, obviously, ordinals are kind of front and center. But I guess I'll start off with when I first was learning about Bitcoin, and you know, every four years the the mining reward gets halved, right? And then eventually it kind of asymptotically goes to zero, right? So like at some point the mining reward is pretty low. And even if Bitcoin is worth a ton, which we all kind of think it will be, it's still pretty low. And there was questions about, like the question I had was like, well, how do you secure the network if the mining reward basically goes away? And in my mind, the only answer was fees. And back then it was like, well, people aren't buying stuff with Bitcoin all the time. So I didn't really understand like how that problem was going to be solved. And I'm curious... I guess, A, is that a problem you guys worry about? And now with ordinals, do you think that might be a potential solution? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, every four years, there is a halving event or 210,000 blocks works out to about four years. There's a halving event where uh, Bitcoin, uh, every 10 minutes, when Bitcoin started, 50 Bitcoin were released. 
And then it went down by half around four years later to 25. Well, we're now in the 6.25 Bitcoin epoch. And in April, around April 19th or 20th, uh, we're going to have again down to 3.125. So what that means is the amount of Bitcoin that's being subsidized in every block is reduced. Um, that said, uh, the other the other mechanism that compensate miners for the efforts that they do, which is you know adding blocks to the to the chain and composing these transactions into um, you know into into the ledger, is transaction fee. So every time I send some Bitcoin, it costs some fee. Uh, I determine I can decide whatever amount of fee I want, um, but it depends on how much fee I add, whether I'll get included in the block or not. So if I set you know a very low fee, most likely I won't be included in a block right away. But if I set a very high fee, I'll be included right away. So the idea is like you want these high time preference transactions, uh, which ordinals and, and, and inscriptions and things like that start to introduce because I want them now and I need to beat other people to get them. Um, so the transaction fee starts to is, has started to make up a very large portion of the block reward. Um, in previous years, like let's say uh, around two years ago, it was consistently around one to two percent of total block reward. A uh, transaction fee was about one to two percent of total block reward, meaning almost almost negligible. Um, over the course of the last year, it was at times greater than a hundred percent because of inscription and ordinal mania. Um, and so that, to me, as a you know my my DNA as a miner, it's very very interesting and very compelling. Uh, and that's what caused me early on to get very interested in ordinals. Uh, of course, now I'm. I would I want to say prolific, but have become one of the larger collectors of ordinals and inscriptions in the space just by proxy, being early and you know kind of identifying projects and things like that early on. Um, but my initial view was definitely through the lens of a miner and how you know these transactions are taking up block space, and then that is causing demand for um, or causing transaction fee to increase because that increased demand for block space. Now we have this having event. You were talking about the security of Bitcoin. We have this having event coming up in April. Um, it's going to bring the block reward down by half, down to three point one two five. It'll happen again in four years, down to you know whatever the half of that is, uh, and we'll continue on down the road until we do actually reach zero. It'll be around the year twenty one forty when there will be no more block subsidy. The rest of the all of the reward that miners are fighting and competing for will come from transaction fee volume. Uh, hopefully, by that time, the idea is that transaction fees will have made up for the subsidy that's been, um, you know, that's effectively gone away. Um, and I would say early, on, you know, around two years ago, when before ordinals, there were a lot of folks that were very concerned that that was not going to play out, that that theory was going to be wrong. Uh, and there were discussions around, should we fork Bitcoin to increase the emission curve, meaning add more Bitcoin to the supply? That was, you know, widely debated, um, very unpopular with a lot of the like traditionalist maxis who, you know, view the 21 million concept as, uh, as a hard rule. Um, I also view that as a hard rule. I think that it should not change. But, um, you know, if the security of Bitcoin were to be at stake, then maybe that's one of the options. Um, there were other options on the table, like uh, potentially increasing the block size. That was kind of a subsidy. Uh, that was sort of a subsidy uh, discussion around: uh, can we increase the block size to add more transactions per block, which allows miners to make more? Um, all of these ideas, I think, uh, at least in the last year, have somewhat gone away because of Ordinals Mania and how much uh, transaction fee volume we've seen. So, uh, hopefully, that was a little bit of a long-winded answer. Hopefully, that covers like. Kind of where we went, where we were, 
how we got to where we are today and what the future might look like. No, that's great. Yeah, the, go ahead, Brandon. I was just going to say, just to piggyback off of a, a couple things that Nick said, I think that was a really, really good sort of summary of the situation. But I really just want to underpin like the biggest thing about ordinals and everything that's happening with these new meta protocols like BRC20s and runes is really the demand for the next block. That's what ultimately drives the the big spikes in, in fees that we see. And so when you have um, a lot of people willing to pay a priority fee to get in that next block, that's what's really the big sort of needle mover for miners or what we see in terms of you know the, the transaction fees associated with a, with a block. Um, and what's been really interesting about what's happening um, in the space is we kind of see, I would say more of like arc focused inscriptions for the most part, um, kind of creating a consistent floor on demand for block space. And then it's really sort of these hype mints, or like if you have like a, a new open mint collection that releases where it's sort of first come first serve, you're seeing those types of projects really cause the massive fee spikes where you, know, you, you see a lot of profitability associated with um, you know, those blocks being mined. Um, so it's, it's a pretty interesting sort of dichotomy between uh, the different types of protocols that are out there, the different type of mints and how they're driving sort of C um, volumes at the end of the day. And I think that um, one, one other thing to just call out there too, um, in regards to whether or not you know, like the, the subsidy or the halving is a concern, is that miners' revenue is denominated in dollars, so that that kind of helps, assuming you know Bitcoin price continues to go up. Um, but of course, any any amount of additional fees helps to sort of offset or alleviate that sort of concern or or requirement. And then you also have the efficiency of the machines, which we're we're still seeing some pretty Im impressive gains um, in terms of efficiency with machines that kind of reduce the the need for um, or some of that pressure associated with the the block subsidy. But just want to throw that out there too. So as a miner, do you have, on average, do you have a certain amount of your machines like offline? Or are you pretty much always online with everything? You're like how often do you like go up and down with your capacity? Go ahead, Brandon. I guess you're the self-monitor. Yes, you go ahead. So um, it really depends on strategy. Our site's located in in Texas. So we're, we're a part of ERCOT. So um, we do curtail based on sort of um, demand response or Whenever there's um, massive spikes in power prices and um, you know on, on the grid, there we're able to sort of economically curtail. So that is certainly a function of of our strategy. But you know our uptime is still rel you know pretty high, over ninety five percent. I think that's that's pretty typical for most miners you see out there. Um, but there are interesting opportunities where we are able to sort of take advantage of that arbitrage opportunity. But you know certainly as the subsidy declines and revenue becomes more dependent upon fees you probably will see more volatility and hash rate um, just as people have to curtail because of you know economic reasons. Um, so that's another really interesting thing to kind of keep an eye on, I think, once we get past this uh, upcoming halving. But kick it back over to Nick for his perspective too. Yeah, I was just, just going to echo that. Miners uh, typically look for 100% uptime. The only reason they wouldn't do that is if they're doing something called demand response or, or um, controllable load resourcing. And that's... that's um, that's something that is economic for them, meaning that they they power up and down based on the economic conditions of the grid that they're operating on. Um, the most popular one and the one that you you know if you went and like did some research that would pop up first would be something uh, about ERCOT, which is the Texas grid. Uh, most likely, you would find like that's where this stuff happens most consistently. And really, the idea is that Bitcoin miners um, are really profit driven, and if the 
price of power goes up, meaning, you know, I need to run, I want to turn on all of the, he the heaters or the air conditioners or whatever. Miners are very uh, sensitive to that and will power down quite quickly. Um, they get notifications from the grid um, called signals that the, the grid will signal to them that they need to power down. Um, for other reasons, you know, like if there's a heat wave or a, or a, a cold snap. Um, and the idea here is that as Bitcoin miners become larger and larger, a bigger part of the grid mix, um, they can flatten the demand curve. I'm sure people have seen it looks like kind of a sinus wave of, uh, of troughs and, um, and peaks. Basically, peak, t peak time is when everybody's using their power. Trough time is when everybody's asleep. Um, Bitcoin miner, th th it's very hard for uh, power producers to predict that curve and respond to it in time. Um, so they have these plants called peaker plants. And so anyway, Bitcoin miners would hopefully reduce the amplitude of those waves, which means if the grid is much more, is much more resilient to, um, much more resilient, uh, to, to unexpected events. So that's actually good for a power company then. Yeah. Yeah. It's very effective for power companies to basically, it reduces their cost, uh, significantly, uh, and then also makes the grid much more resilient in the event of unexpected events, like, you know, weather and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then just to echo, I mean, I think most people know that Bitcoin has a 21 million hard cap, but like that's, to me, that's kind of like the fundamental part of Bitcoin and why it's different than, for example, Solana or Ethereum or any other big L1 that, that I can think of. I mean, and, and yes, theoretically it could change through consensus and a fork, but I certainly, I don't see that ever happening. It would probably be called something else or something. And so, um, I, I think it's, it's interesting how. I, like, I wonder if the ordinals hype, if you want to call it, or if that's going to last, you know, long enough for this to really solve that problem. It doesn't seem like it's going yeah. to, there's definitely, there's more ordinals, act I mean, more and more ordinals activity every time you look and it's not just, it started with JPEGs on the blockchain, you know, you know, the, the proverbial monkey pictures on the blockchain. Um, but it's so much more now and it's going to become even more uh, as of the having block. We're going to introduce something called runes. I think Brandon might know more about that uh, than I even do. And so, Brandon, I'll kick that over to you if you want to talk about runes maybe a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I know, you know, I know a decent amount. So what's what's really exciting about the runes protocol is, you know, this is a, a new token protocol that Casey is designing himself. So Casey Rodemore, he's the, the creator of the Ordinals protocol. So, you know, just by nature, there's a lot of hype and anticipation um, around this protocol. Originally, the the earlier token protocol that we've had on Bitcoin associated with ordinals was BRC20s. There's been a couple other variants since then. But the big criticism around BRC20s was just that it wasn't a very efficient token protocol because it requires you to do a series of inscriptions in order to, one, mint the inscription, but then to also transfer it, you have to uh, mint this transfer inscription, and then you have to send that transfer inscription once you want to um, sort of move the balance. And so it's a little bit of a, a clunky, uh, clunky UI. And we've had um, some companies make great efforts and strides to ultimately improve that user experience. But um, it also can be a little bit costly to do that because of having to do two or three, you know, transactions effectively to participate. So runes will be much more streamlined in terms of how it works. Uh, the other sort of interesting thing with the Runes protocol is that it it will be uh, I think it's a it follows a UTXO model, um, which is interesting because theoretically um, the protocol should work with other layer two scaling solutions on Bitcoin. Um, you know, there, there's still going to be a lot of work to kind of figure out exactly what that interoperability would look like and how it would function. 
but it's it's pretty interesting because you could have runes theoretically move over something like the lightning uh, network and essentially take advantage of that for you know scaling or to be able to do faster transactions and, and different things like that. Um, and again, it is it's much more um, efficient from a block space utilization perspective and not having to create quite as many transactions in order to actually interface or transact um, with the protocol. So that's going to be really exciting. Um, in terms of what I understand from the tickers and how that will work, I believe Casey is reserving the first 10 sort of tickers uh, associated with, with the, the Rings protocol um, for not necessarily himself, but he's kind of reserving them and making it like, sort of like an open community effort to determine what the first 10 tickers should be. So that's sort of a, a fun little thing that's kind of going on in, in the space as people are voting for their you know different ideas. And there's, there's a lot of wacky ones too out there. So let's talk, I actually wanted to talk about UTXO for a minute because um, I don't think many people that listen to this podcast really understand what it is. But let me try to explain it and then you correct me if I'm wrong. So with Bitcoin, they don't the, the method of accounting is UTXO, which is an unspent transactional output. And so basically your wallet just looks at how many of those are in your wallet and that's like how much Bitcoin you have. So let's say, for example, I bought five Bitcoin on an exchange. Let's just say, for example, that was all in one UTXO. So I have one UTXO on my, in my wallet that is five Bitcoin. I pay you 0.1 Bitcoin. What happens is the 4.9 so, so, so that five UTXO is like burned or whatever, it goes away and the four, it turns into two new ones, a 4.9 that goes back to my wallet, but probably a different address on my wallet. So like, it doesn't necessarily look like it's going back. It's not going to like scalynelson.e, like on ether where you, it's much more easy to read. And then the point one is the second UTXO that is paid to you. Is that sort of correct or? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what happens. So your, your UTXO, UTXOs are used as what are called inputs. So a UTXO goes into an input in a transaction, and then what comes out of that transaction is more UTXOs, just different ones. Um, and so that's exactly right. So you, you know, no, now you take your UTXO uh, for for uh, five as an input, um, and then that transaction uh, has two UTXOs. Then one of them being point one to me, uh, and then four point nine back to you to either the same address if you want to reuse the address. Generally, people don't, or it would go to another address that you own. Um, Bitcoin, there's a way for you to derive addresses from a private key. So when somebody says you're you know, using your private key, uh, you can create trillions. And uh, I don't know how, exactly how many it is, but it's trillions of addresses per private key. And I've always had this question. Is there a way for an outside entity to know if two addresses are related based on the fact like other than looking like chain analysis where they can see transactions, let's just say you have like these virgin transactions where there'd be no way for them to know that. Can they tell they're coming from the same seed phrase? Absolutely not. No, that would be, yeah, you would have to be able to infer from uh, on-chain analysis whether uh, two addresses are uh, associated with each other in any way. Okay, got it. Uh, I thought that was the case, but I wasn't sure. Um, and then how does this apply to ordinals? I'll tell you, the best explanation I've seen of Ordinal so far that's the simplest, it was Jack Butcher had a tweet and he had a dollar bill and he said Ordinal and he had a dollar bill that he signed and he said inscription. So Ordinal theory states that there are there, there's 21 million Bitcoin. Each Bitcoin can be broken down into what are called Satoshis. There's a, a hundred million of those per Bitcoin. So there's 2.1 quadrillion Satoshis that will ever exist. Ordinal theory states that you can number each and every one of them. So the very first block, uh, the very first Satoshi of the very first block 
uh, which is of uh, uh, that Satoshi mind is is called a mythic, or that's Satoshi number one. When you get all the way to the end, that will be Satoshi number two point one quadrillion, and then all of the Satoshis in between there all have individual numbers, or also known as ordinals. So that's your ordinal number. Each Satoshi has an ordinal number. Um, the, all of the Satoshis that I have in my wallet have individual ordinal numbers. Um, an inscription is some extra data that is then associated to an ordinal number. And that then makes the inscription tradable. So the way that I move the inscription around is not actually moving the inscription itself. I'm moving the owner of the ordinal, which it is assigned to, and it's called inscribing. So I inscribe that inscript, I inscribe that Satoshi with an inscription, and then the owner of that inscript of that Satoshi actually owns the underlying inscription. So it's kind of like a pointer. So an ordinal is a pointer to an inscription, and that's how it works. Um, so when people are talking about buying ordinals, really what they're buying is the ownership of the inscription underneath, and the ordinal, the individual Satoshi, um, is the thing that points to that ownership. So is that is that Satoshi? Does it have to transfer a wallet? Yeah, it will transfer wallets, yeah. and whoever, whatever wallet owns it is the one that uh, um, that owns the the underlying art or the the inscription, whatever the inscription happens to be, the data. And then it is considered on chain, though, correct? That that's right. Like the way that I would describe it is the data is fully on chain; it lives on Bitcoin. It doesn't move with the Satoshi, um, mm. but you know you own the SAT. The SAT actually does transfer. So the link between that data and the Satoshi, the individual Satoshi, there's sort of, you know, that's the ordinal theory aspect. That's the social consensus as aspect that links the two together. Um, but, you know, your sort of certificate of ownership is the actual Satoshi. And then ordinal theory is how you can link that data back to that SAT. Okay. And that had something to do with Caproot, correct? The fact that this is possible. Yeah. You want to go for it, Brandon? You got it. You got this one. Yeah. So uh, pre pre taproot, there's this say, there's this bit of data in the transaction called witness data. Um, taproot and actually the Segwit fork introduced what's called a discount for that data, meaning um, you can you can use that data for less fee, and that's that 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 little distinction is what was utilized to make inscription inscribing actually possible. So like if I wanted to go add a megabyte of data to the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, and I had to pay full fee rate, um, it would be very, very expensive, prohibitively expensive to do that. And nobody ever really did. There, there's a few like small inscriptions and like uh, little hex bits here and there. Um, you know, uh, Luke Jr. put like Bible verses and stuff in, but nothing like a picture. Um, and so like a full picture. And so, but, but this, this discount, um, which was introduced for other reasons, was then used to allow people to say, oh, I can actually inscribe, you know, I can inscribe this uh, relatively high resolution picture, a few hundred kilobytes for 50 bucks. Um, I, that's that's reasonable for me to do. Um, and so that's why that's why Taproot and, 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 the, uh, and the SegWit discount actually came together and kind of made um, this inscription process possible. Uh, the, there, there's the, the commitment of the ordinal to the uh, of the ordinal to the inscription that was necessary by some of the uh, the the tap script um, opcodes or improvements made as part of the taproot uh, soft work um, and that's one of the key unlocks which actually made them transferable. So like with Segwit, the Segwit upgrade of 2017, you could actually do the inscribing, but you wouldn't be able to like move the ownership around. The taproot improvement is what actually allowed for ownership and the transference of the ownership via ordinal theory. So 
it was kind of like a, a multi-year uh, improvement process that was not actually, this was not the intent of either of those uh, um, improvements. So, but that that's where we are today. So then it's not much different than like CryptoPunks, which are an ERC-20 token. Like the art's not, you're not buying the art, you're buying a token that then everyone agrees is associated with the art, you know, of that token. And that token is transferred to your wallet, but the art's not moving. So it's kind of similar, right? I would say it's similar, but the art in this case is on-chain. I don't know if CryptoPunks are yeah. coded into the canonical ETH chain, but but these will be like, if you went and downloaded a, a fresh Bitcoin node uh, and loaded up the, the ordinal viewer, that data is on the chain forever now. And, and how, just, just as comment real quick, so what Punks did is way later, like, I don't know, a year ago, they put them on chain. So they are on chain now, but it was way after the fact. And what they, what they actually did initially was pretty cool. They hashed an image of all of them together and put that on chain when they released the contract so that you can sort of verify later if yours was legit or not. So that was kind of clever. But going back to what with ordinals, so then where is the art? I'm kind of confused on where is the art actually stored? And, and if it's not like in your wallet, I mean, I know your wallet is all, isn't really, it's sort of confusing, right? Because a wallet is just telling the world who has permission to spend a Bitcoin. It's not like it's in your wallet, really. But then where is the art? Yeah, the art is pointed to on chain. Um, so there's the ordinal client. Uh, basically, you keep track of um, which owners of the SAT that that uh, that that piece of it that 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 piece of art uh, has transferred to, and like the final resting place of that SAT is the owner. I Casey Rodemore, but the founder of this, kind of called it. Uh, we we have this shared hallucination. Uh, we all agree that this is the way it works, um, and that's you know it, it cryptographically makes sense the way that it was implemented. Um, but as you mentioned, you're not really moving the art per se. You're moving the the title, the owner, the ownership of the art um, along. And with I, I guess the the only other thing I would add there too is like you know, I think for some of the Ethereum NFTs, they might be scattered across like IPFS or. In this case, on Bitcoin, it's it's literally stored on people's nodes. So that that's kind of that's partially the meme, uh, yeah, in the space. Like my monkey lives on on your node. So every every um, you know Bitcoin <laughs> user out there running a Bitcoin full node is hosting our our JPEGs or our monkeys uh, uh, effectively. So so every Bitcoin full node out there, um, you know, in the world is is ultimately hosting these artifacts. Um, and as long as there's at least one person. You know, running a Bitcoin full node, then you know that data will always be available. So there's a block somewhere with, like, like when you do a new inscription, that art goes into a block on the Bitcoin blockchain. Yep. Okay, and then and then it's done. Like at that point, it's never going away. Yep. Exactly. Yep. And how many? Just so I have an idea, roughly, like on any given day, how many full nodes are being run in the world? Bitcoin nodes. That's a good question. I think it's. I think it's like yeah. around fifteen thousand. I think it's around fifteen thousand. Okay. And. I think it's another common question. Like, what's the difference between someone who's running a node and a miner? Yeah, so running a full node just means having a copy of the Bitcoin blockchain and running the the code to say, to stay up to date with the tip. I have a node running on my MacBook. I have a node running on a Raspberry Pi. Luxor runs dozens of nodes around the world to stay up to date with the state of the chain. So that's running a node, and that's really just taking in information from the other nodes, validating that it's accurate, and if it meets the rules, adding that set of data which is considered a block to your uh your data uh, your blockchain um miners are actually looking at something called the mempool um 
there's you know there's a mempool in ETH, um, and the mempool is like this this the pool of transactions that are not confirmed yet that haven't been added. It's it's ephemeral, meaning your mempool on your node is different from somebody else's because of latency mm. and um, you know bunch of different reasons. But uh, the mempool is is not really a it's not a solid thing. It's it changes. You know it could be of course inside of China it's probably different than out here because of networking and latency and and node configuration parameters and all sorts of things. But ultimately, miners are looking for the optimal set of transactions from the mempool that they have available to them to add to the next block. And once they find that block, they broadcast it to the network. And then that is what becomes part of the canonical chain and is included in the longest uh, block chain. Um, and that's the difference between running a node and being a miner. So there's no economic, direct economic incentive to run a node, correct? No. So people just do it to be libertarian or whatever or i guess if you have a mining company you'll probably run some just because why not right that's right if, if you want to verify your own transactions thing of thing you know things of that nature you know people run a their own bitcoin node for that reason um i think that's one, one of the, the the other big reason there you know that i i think bitcoin as a whole tries to focus on making it very very cheap in order to run a node so part of the the controversy even associated with ordinals and, and inscriptions is sort of increasing, you know, block space very rapidly and thus increasing the cost of storage, even though it's sort of capped, there's a theoretical cap for how, you know, how much storage could be added just based on the timing of blocks and the block size limit. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, the goal for Bitcoin is to make it very, very cheap for people to run Bitcoin nodes to help it become a, a more distributed and decentralized system. Um, and I think it it is generally cheaper to run the Bitcoin node versus like a Ethereum validator node or there's not as high of, you know, uh, requirements from like a, a compute perspective. I, I tried to run a Monero node once and like my computer like almost crashed and died like before I could even download the whole thing. <laughs> that was the closest I could. <laughs> Can I just ask a question? So well, you mentioned the mempool um, and on Ethereum, like I just, just really briefly to ask. So on Ethereum, you've got MEV, which is minor extractable value. So every block that's about to be created miners are looking ahead to see what or people that are exploiting MAV rather are looking ahead to see what transactions are coming and then trying to like get in front of certain transactions or get behind other transactions to, to profit from arbitrage opportunities does MEV exist on Bitcoin and, and if so is it like the winning miner that gets to pick the ordering of the block how does that kind of work yeah so it's it's very very nascent there is a lot of speculation that ordinals and in uh, and, and ultimately runes will introduce significant MEV opportunities. Um, there are, the, the definition of MEV is going to be quite different in Bitcoin. Um, for example, people like in, in ETH, a, a classic MEV example in ETH is you notice somebody is about to make a big trade, you can sandwich them. Add liquidity or remove liquidity, let their trade go through and then add or remove that liquidity, whatever is beneficial to you um, to take advantage of the slippage and um, and effectively give them a, a worse uh, a worse fill. Um, that's called sandwiching, but it also requires like contracts and like the you know the execution of those contracts. And so in Bitcoin, there isn't that contract structure, but there will be you know maybe some sort of sandwiching uh, a potential if uh, if like meta protocols are introduced to um, to bit you know to 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 Bitcoin and order and ordinals inside. So. For example, if there's a meta protocol that says transaction A adds liquidity, um, transaction B removes liquidity, and transaction C does some trade, you would go A, C, B to uh, basically sandwich that uh, that trade. Um, 
So that's one, like, that's an example of where MEV might exist. It doesn't exist now, but there's a good chance that in a year from now, MEV on Bitcoin is going to be a very hot topic. And it would be up to the mining pools to ultimately decide where those transactions get ordered and how, uh, you know, how that value is being extracted. Watching some of the the back and forth of collections on Magic Eden, like when stuff's getting hot and suddenly there are bids across the collection, 30, 40 bids. It feels like that must be an opportunity if you can get in front of, you, you see bids and it's a hot, hot ordinary it's a hot monkey or whatever the hell it is um if i'm a sophisticated enough player i can front run that bid and, and buy the thing before they buy it and stuff. absolutely so front running is another you know another big use case for these types of things um that is coming there's also so there's something called dark mempools which is kind of what mev like that was kind of the solution to mev in um in eth early on was you know just saying uh, you know i'll only broadcast my transaction to the to the the miners and nobody else um, that's coming to Bitcoin most likely, um, to, much to the chagrin of like Bitcoin purists, but whether they like it or not, that's probably coming. Um, there's probably going to be discussion around, um, you know, private mempools, mempools that can't be exploited for MEV, that sort of thing. Um, but it's all very, you know, it's all very, uh, very niche. I just find it so fascinating that, well, for example, Taproot was created and this is a completely unintended consequence. Like Satoshi probably never thought of this, or maybe he or she did, but like, it's just crazy how Bitcoin seems kind of simple when you first learn about it. I mean, not really, but when you first learn the first part, you're like, okay, I get it. And then like, you can just keep learning about it every day. Like it keeps getting more complicated. It's kind of crazy. That's certainly true. <laughs> certainly true. <laughs> yeah. It's like a living, breathing uh, organism or something. It's kind of nuts. Mm. So were you both mining oh. before you, you got into commercially working in, in the space were you like both bitcoin miners already or i personally was mining through a platform called compass so that they basically just help try to provide better mining opportunities for like clubs or like retail miners so that was kind of my first foray into to getting involved i'd always been interested in, in wanting to try mining um but you know I, I live in like a one bedroom like apartment and i have a girlfriend so that that would never really work and the power cost is really high um, but when I saw that platform kind of come available, it was like a great opportunity for me to dabble. And then I just kind of went down the mining rabbit hole. And it's, it's kind of like you said, like with Bitcoin, there's always something new to learn about. Like you think you kind of know what there, you know, what, what there is, um, about it. And then you, you kind of end up realizing you don't know nearly as much as you thought. And there's always just a massive, uh, you know, amount of new stuff to kind of learn and explore. Brandon, you should get a hot tub in your in there. Eat it with the with your miners. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, there's the. Uh, have you seen that the the hot tub or the oh, yeah. what is it? The um, yeah, it's pretty dope. You know, the spa pretty... two spa two fifty six. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what it is. is that. Isn't it in Texas? Don't they have one in Austin or something? I kind of read about that. Yeah, it's Jesse Peltan who put that built that. Um, legend, legend. Um, yeah, he built yeah, uh, awesome. a couple of, a couple S nines. He did his hot tub. There's actually a, a spa, like an actual like commercial spa in New York that uses Bitcoin miners for that. They are not like Bitcoiners by any means. They don't really care about Bitcoin. They just thought it was an interesting way for them to like monetize their energy usage. So as a miner, do you sell 100% of your uh, rewards or do you have some other strategy where you keep some? Or... Yeah, uh, for, well, I, I can't say specifically uh, about Galaxy just because that's more confidential, but like you do see miners in general take a range of approaches some sell all of their production others want to have like a hodl strategy and, and want to take on bitcoin price exposure 
Um, you really see a, a mixed strategy, honestly, across the board. Um, I think there's strong reasons to do both. It, it really just kind of depends on your risk uh, your risk tolerance at the end of the day. <laughs> at the level that you're operating at, presumably there are like hedging strategies and all that kind of stuff as well. Is that what you yeah. mean? You said you do financial services, like Galaxy does financial services around miners. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about? Exactly. So you can do things like costless calendars. You can use sort of like options and derivatives to kind of hedge some of the you know the bitcoin price exposure so you can cap your upside um but you can also sort of limit your downside as well with the bitcoin that you are holding um there's other things you can do on the energy side as well but it's more dependent upon um you know where you operate and sort of the nature of your your either ppa or, or your power agreement depending on your situation but there's ways that you can also you know take out hedges on power and, and kind of trade energy um to manage that that risk as well but that's generally what we're talking about and then Nick, of course, I'll let him talk about this, but there's also um, hash rate uh, derivatives as well. So I'll, I'll let you talk about that one. Yeah, so that's certainly um, you know a place that's near, near and dear to my heart. So Luxor builds the most liquid uh, derivative market for hash rate based products. The idea being, um, you know, very similar to the way oil producers and, and corn producers can, you know, like oil producers can sell forward their oil production, or corn farmers can sell uh, forward some of their corn production. Um, the same thing can happen in Bitcoin mining where, you know, you produce X amount of Bitcoin, you can sell forward uh, at maybe some discount to spot price. Um, and the idea there is that the buyer is able to, you know, get Bitcoin for cheaper. Um, and that's the that's kind of the trade. Uh, and it works really, really well. And it gives miners more security and they're able to you know, reduce the amount of capital that they need to have on balance sheet because they're now hedged. Uh, that's basically the classic example. Um, there are more exotic m methodologies, um, but that uh, that miners use. But that's the one that you know is most tangible and lets people under kind of understand what the the Luxor Derivatives Desk is actually doing. Um, and that's something that we've been building for you know 18 to 24 months now. Uh, ultimately, going to you know just continue to add more products and, and different strategies. You know, one of the one of the areas that we're exploring now is um, building structured products to actually edge. Not only your outputs, which is you know the the, the hash you know ha hash rate ultimately the rewards earned by that hash rate, but also your inputs like your energy costs, um, things like that. We think that um, you know if we put together these structured products and you start to look at Bitcoin mining a lot more lot a lot more like a commodity business, um, that the you know that overall the, the operational efficiency that you gain from doing that um, you know, would would benefit your business overall. You know, reduce your cost of capital. Uh, allow you to expand more quickly, take advantage of opportunities, um, be more balance sheet, uh, or how do I say, um, be more, be less capital intensive of a business and, and reduce, you know, kind of unexpected, you know, the, the amount of volatility that you're exposed to. Um, Bitcoin miners are notorious for the boom, you know, going bust in the booms as a part of the boom and bust cycle that generally occurs in Bitcoin. In Bitcoin. Um, and so now, you know, these products hopefully will reduce that, uh, that amount of volatility and keep you know, keep Bitcoin miners here for a little bit longer than uh, than they have been in previous cycles, because there's a lot of them now. Actually, I was you know Brandon is an analyst on this, but there's how many hubcos are there now? Are there over twenty, Brandon? I think close to it. I, it's somewhere between fifteen and twenty for sure now. It's a lot. We've come a long way in a very short period of time. Was that publicly traded mining firms? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh wow. Well, some of the biggest being like Riot, uh, Riot platforms, Marathon, Clean Spark. Uh, and then there's other ones that are, you know, that are smaller, but still just came to, you know, just came to market like grid. Um, there's a lot of them that are out there, uh, and there's more coming. It's crazy how ordinals ties into all of that too. 
um, <laughs> just monkey pictures, <laughs> but, uh, so going back to ordinal. So, cause I don't fully understand BRC 20. I heard Casey on a podcast saying how he doesn't like them. And it's kind of funny that like they were sort of an unintended consequence of what he did. And he's kind of like, well, I got to live with that. Cause I know people hate what I kind of did anyway. So whatever, it's all part of the deal. And then it sounds like this rooms is his attempt to improve that. And Brandon, you mentioned some of the reasons it's better. It sounds like it's simpler. Um, but the impression I got from Casey's comments were like, if you just go look at ordinals randomly being entered, you get like this spam of all these crappy looking BRC twenties, which aren't art. They're just like this weird, I don't even know what, you, what they look like. They're just like a, a box with like some numbers or letters on them. And I don't really understand what they even are other than shit coins on Bitcoin. Yeah, that's pretty, that's, that's pretty much exactly right. They're just shit coins on Bitcoin basically. Um, and yeah, I mean, they're, they're inscription files, but all it is, is just a, a string adjacent text basically. So it'll say something like, mm. uh, mint, whatever the ticker is, um, amount, and then a number. And it's kind of like, you know, boxed into a string adjacent. So that's, that's all it is. And so when you would go look at like ordinals.com or any other explorer, and you kind of look at all, all the new inscriptions, you would just see massive amounts of these files. Um, which, you know, I, I, I understand Casey's perspective. He wanted this to be about art and not so much about, it wasn't supposed to be a token protocol. Um, mm -hmm. but I think what I think is interesting about BRC 20s is it was sort of, I guess, and Nick, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it was the first instance of building a meta protocol on top of a sort of meta protocol. And yeah. what's really cool about like BRC 20s is it, it expanded the sandbox for what is now possible by leveraging ordinal theory in order to build all kinds of new applications or other protocols or, or other standards. So you also had things like bitmaps sort of come about uh, through a similar sort of ideology, uh, which is, a, it's basically just a, a metaverse play. Um, I, I believe what it is, I'm not too, too involved with bitmap, but it's effectively a way to sort of index and own blocks like individual bitcoin blocks but it's just another meta protocol at the end of the day um but that's sort of like the gist of brc20s and like why it is still like very much historically significant and relevant even if it's not necessarily the most efficient way to do a token protocol in bitcoin yeah it was kind of a cambrian moment where maybe it wasn't the best protocol but it really kind of opened people's idea of what is possible here um we're now where ETH stores and maintains its state on chain and also does the computation on chain. We basically have the computation done elsewhere, but the state result, it, the results are all put to the chain. And so that's kind of where we ended up here um, with, uh, with, um, with BRC20 uh, and all these other meta protocols on top of a meta protocol is we're storing data into the chain and then using code and computation outside of the chain to interpret what it means. So like if you have, you know, if you have 10,000 BRC20s uh, inscribed in various different ways, you then parse through all of that data sequentially and come to what is the state as a result of all of that data. Um, and that's like what how BRC20 works. But that isn't possible without a a a the fundamental underpinning being ordinals, which is a protocol of how do you actually put data onto the chain and retrieve it in an efficient, relatively efficient manner? So it, while BRC20 is like the most left curve thing uh, I've ever, probably ever seen in, in <laughs> to date, 
No, it knows no lie. There's been a lot of dumb shit in Bitcoin and in crypto, and crypto at large. But this has got to be one of the worst. Um, anyway, it 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 was like I said, sort of a Cambrian moment where it started this huge flourishing of new ideas and uh, brought what probably like I mean, BRC twenty brought runes, and runes will be in from what I can tell, and in my opinion, a very good way of introducing fungible tokens to Bitcoin. Um, because of the UTXO strategy, meaning you can take all of that act- the trading activity off chain. On you could actually use you could actually use runes on Lightning. Um, you would be able to use runes on all the L2s that exist today and are coming. So I think that these like this this concept is very very interesting. And it, and you know we do have to thank BRC20 for that, but it is time for BRC20 to kind of go away. <laughs> I think uh, well, one one other thing too. Just super quick. It might be even be helpful to just define what we mean when we say meta protocol. I don't know if that would be helpful, sure. but I feel like it's kind of like yeah, for sure. just more jargon. But uh, the way that I just kind of think of a meta protocol is just it, it's basically a set of rules that are, are not a part of what I'd say is like Bitcoin Core or the the main Bitcoin software. That is in the most simple way that I could define it. Um, and so anyone can create a set of rules, right? That could sort of interplay with Bitcoin. Um, at the end of the day, but all you would need is an indexer. And I don't know, Nick, if you want to talk a little bit about indexers, since you guys have built one. Um, but in order to create a meta protocol, you just need other people to also agree to or run the same set of rules. Um, so a lot of it just relies on social consensus at the end of the day. But that's effectively what we mean when we're when we're talking about meta protocols. Yeah, that's a great point. It a lot like Bitcoin doesn't enforce any of these rules. Like Bitcoin has no idea what an inscription is or that there's monkey JPEGs or anything. It just thinks there's extra witness data, which it treats no different, um, especially because of the way it's been inscripted into the, you know, into the chain. Um, there is uh, the, 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 what he says, meta protocol, that's like us building extra, another layer, you know, in, in this case, it's a sidecar that runs to Bitcoin. If you run a Bitcoin daemon, you run Bitcoin D and then you run the or the ORD client, which gives you that view of the data on Bitcoin. And then you have like this other, and then you run the Unisat or like the, the BRC20 uh, indexer on top of that. And then it gives you the view of BRC20 land because um, you know or, Ordinal, like Ord doesn't, Ord, the Ord client doesn't really know about BRC20. So it knows there's JSON data there, but it doesn't know how to like accumulate a balance or like understand transfers and things like that. So you now have like these meta protocols on meta protocols, which is what, uh, what, BC, or what Brandon's talking about. So that's that collective delusion that you guys are talking about. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Uh, we shared hallucination. Yep, shared hallucination. Yeah, but I mean that's what that's all with crypto. <laughs> <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> that's cool. I hadn't really thought about it that way. So that, that makes a lot of sense. How you know Bitcoin doesn't have any idea what's going on. You have to all collectively agree to download this wallet that then points out. Oh, by the way, looking at the Bitcoin blockchain, you own these ordinals, and you can transfer them by using our software, but the Bitcoin native, a Bitcoin native wallet, it's just for running, like using Bitcoin, you can't really use ordinals, right? Not without being a very advanced user. Like since you know that an ordinal lives on a particular UTXO, you would then oh yeah, use wallets and say, okay, I know that. I just have to be very careful about the way I use this wallet now and make sure that I'm not using that UTXO incorrectly. Um, cause a lot of, so what happens if you use the UTXO incorrectly is that it'll get spent as a fee to the miner. Uh, and that's a problem that we're dealing with right now as a miner and other mining pools. 
um, is that we're like becoming sort of a black hole, a sink for oh, all this yeah. random shit that people accidentally <laughs> spend. Um, there's somebody in my DMs right now asking me to go collect a piece of art that's worth forty dollars, and I don't know what to, I don't know what to tell him. Like, um, I have to go get my custodian and go help him out. Like, I feel really bad because the tooling isn't there yet, and people, this is going to continue to happen. I mean, I've burnt uh, art to fees before I realized that you can't do RBS. Um, uh, I burnt art to a fee uh, to buy BTC as a piece of art of mine that uh, I'll probably never get back because. I used RBF, uh, which is a way to um, accelerate a transaction, and uh, and launched it. And so, uh, there's yeah. Anyway, it's um, it's a whole new world out there right now. And so, just g- general like advice is to have like Xverse, for example, wallet will tell you use this wallet only for ordinals and use this wallet only for buying and selling Bitcoin. We, we call it being ordinals aware. These wallets need to be, or they need to understand that there's extra data associated with the inscript, with the with the Bitcoin that you have in your wallet. And so that's Xverse, Unisat, uh, Leather. Mm-hmm. Brandon, which one do you use? I use uh, Unisat mostly and, and Xverse. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was part of the fun or, or the scary part about ordinals in the early days was that none of these wallets existed. So you had to really learn about UTXO management um, if you wanted to participate in, in those early days. If you weren't running your own sort of ordinal node, then most people were using Sparrow Wallet where you could you know, do this advanced management. But uh, good times, good times back then. And so hearing Casey talk, I think he said, I want to say he said ordinals were out for about a year. Is that right? Before anyone cared? The concept of ordinal theory has been around since like 2013. Like the idea that you can number yep. individual Satoshis has been around for a long time. Uh, I don't know when he started actually writing the Ord client to start uh, solidifying this shared hallucination. Um, but like that was really kind of the unlock was like the ability to actually go through and say, yes, this Satoshi has this number and I can maintain mm-hmm. that state uh, ad- indefinitely. And then, of course, the big unlock being, um, you know, being the ability to actually do the inscription. Well, if you look at the Ordinals uh, Explorer, I remember like his first one is Ordinals Zero or Inscription Number Zero, which is the skull. I'm sure you guys have all seen it. It's like a black skull. Cool. And I guess Casey owns that one, and I think he only owns one other one. Uh, like, like, like that's the only monetary gain he's directly getting is owning the first ever inscription, right? I'm sure he's rich from other ways, but like it's not like he's getting paid for every time someone's using inscriptions, right? Even though via that is true, yeah. That is true. Yeah. So, so he he holds number zero, which is, I think, will be almost priceless at some point. But then, um, um, if you look at the graph, it's like there's a few people making up, a few people making up, and then like for like months, I want to say, and then all of a sudden it just shot up and like went went crazy one day. Exactly. So yeah. I wanted to talk about specific uh, projects like um, like Taproot Wizards, Node Monkeys, um, uh, Bitcoin Punks. Like these are some of the ones. So then there's just recently the Quantum Cats. And um, of course, the puppets, and then the Arsic protocol. You guys have any thoughts on any of those? Or yeah, def- I have a lot of thoughts. I mean, Nick, I'm sure you can talk a lot about cats, but, but anyone you want to start with in particular? Yeah, why don't we start with um, Taproot Wizards? Because I'm like a couple of questions I have. I mean, they've already been created but not released. Is that sort of what the deal is? It's like that part of it kind of confuses me. Like yeah. they were made like really early on, and then like when the hell are they going to actually sell them? So the early meta, like one of the very first metas was like early number better, like back when, you know, like inscription number 
Inscription number 100, more valuable than 1,000. Inscription number 1,000, more valuable than 10,000. That sort of thing. And so they were, like, they had the, you know, they kind of wanted to do what's called, they wanted early provenance. And so that was one of the driving factors for getting it out there. They weren't ready, they're not ready to fully release the project to the public yet. And so that's one of the, you know, but they wanted to get the art out. And so that was like one of the big factors. But as of now, most people don't really know what Taproot Wizards is doing. Um, yeah, they've, they've released quantum caps cause they need, they wanted, they want to fund a fork. So they're going to fund uh, a fork called Opcat, uh, and they're using the funds from this NFT, this, this drop for that. Um, and that'll introduce, you know, a bunch of other stuff, but that's kind of where we're at with, um, Taproot Wizards. Brandon, anything else on that? It, you got to tell the story of the four mega. Well, yeah, they wanted to rip a four mega. They knew they wanted a, a big block that requires working with the mining pool. Through a couple of connections, Udi and I got in touch, and he was like, "Hey, do you think guys think that Luxor would be interested in doing this?" And this was around the time, you know, there's 61 million inscriptions now. This is around number like 400. He reached out, and they were only doing like 10 or 20 a day, not many a day. Um, and so I was like, "Yeah, let's figure it out." So he, you know, he sends me the art, and we load it up and get, and you know, we had to make changes to our Bitcoin node to actually allow this thing to, because like you went and tried to craft this transaction on a regular Bitcoin node it would say invalid uh, or say unaccepted. It wouldn't be accepted to the mempool. And so we went and crafted a transaction and then changed our Bitcoin node to actually introduce it and put it in. And then we mined it. Um, and then people went crazy. And that was like one of the first, like that was one of the the, the big catalysts for kind of Ordinal's mania, the first one, which would have been around this time last year, maybe like maybe another, you know, end of March, I think was really when there was like this first real huge wave in, in Ordinal mania. That was when, let's see, what do you think, Brandon? That was when like the hottest for projects at the time were, um, I would say, Ordinal Punks, uh, Ordinal Rocks, Rocks, uh, Inscribe Pepe, yeah, Bitcoin Fund. It was basically everything sub 10K. I I think we were just approaching about the first 10,000 or just got over the 10,000 inscription. Shrooms were awesome. Everyone wanted to shroom, but uh, Shroom Toshi wasn't, wasn't selling them quite yet, so... We were trying to figure out how to get into Discord, but shrooms were definitely a, a hot item. Um, yeah. Okay, so if, you, if you're if you saying, I'm going to wait and then I'm going to mine, I have a node that's going to, if I understand this correctly, identify this block that you want to mine. And then you, when you say you mine, like how the hell do you decide to mine it? It just means that once you hit your your magic uh, hash number, how often does that happen in, in your mining operation every so? Or so Luxor is a mining pool and we have about 4% of the hash rate. There's 144 blocks oh, wow. a day. And so we mine around what, five to six blocks a day. That's average. Oh, wow. So um, we threw it in there and it ended up getting mined actually quite quickly. Um, we threw it in and got mined quite quickly, uh, quite a bit faster than we expected it actually at the time. Um, and had, you know, and it was, yeah. And then it was in and, uh, and then I kind of started, that started a, a whole media blitz of people wondering like was bitcoin broken um how did this four megabyte block get made because it should be you know bitcoin should only have two megabyte blocks what happened um there was all this stuff discussing that um yeah it was uh it was it was definitely an interesting time and we can we, you know I, I know i know we kind of just laid the groundwork for what ordinals are and like how how they work but i don't think we really got into the projects that much uh and unfortunately i yeah. do have to drop but i think brandon um you know brandon knows more about the projects than i do like one of the brand is probably one of the most prolific collectors in the space. So awesome. Okay. So that's, that's crazy. So, so then if I have this right, 
you don't have to broadcast your transaction. You could just send it to one person and then say, hey, when you mine it, put it in there. And as long as it's not illegal, like- Yeah, yeah. so that's called a uh, an out-of-band transaction. Um, not too common, but what you, you can do is exactly what they did in this instance, go directly to a mining pool and say, hey, I want you to include this specific transaction in a block. And what you effectively do is pay them, cut, you know, on the side, effectively. Um, and so that's that's what's called an out of band okay. transaction. And so, um, yeah, there are a couple of projects that did this. So Luxor actually did the, the D Gods project in this way, which was pretty interesting. That's how they got all the D Gods into a oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. I had no idea. That's so cool. So let's talk about some of these projects because. Um, so, so I got involved. I actually, I have a couple of random uh, inscriptions from a while ago. Like a friend of mine did a project and I have, I think it's like number 30 something thousands. That's kind of cool. It's kind of nice. pretty new or pretty old. And then um, my, my first real um, dive in was Node Monkeys. I minted some, uh, or I didn't mint them, but I, I bought them right away on secondary. And that's when I got, like I was so used to, or not used to using Bitcoin and I had forgotten I was under the assumption that like you didn't need to speed it up. It would always go through. And then I got, uh, that didn't happen. Like it never left the mempool. And so like my initial buys didn't go through and I had to like rebuy. But anyway, that was like that first day when they were popping off. And then I ended up getting like, I think I have five of them. I, I like them. I think they're cool. And they're like a stable coin at 0.17, which is kind of funny. But um, I do feel like kind of bullish on those long-term. And then um, what about the quantum cats? Like what's your opinion on those? Yeah, I, I think the quantum cats are are really interesting. I think um, you know Rendell, uh, who's a part of the Taproots Wizard team, he's probably um, you know one of the best Bitcoin developers just out there in the space. I mean, an, an incredibly smart guy, and they did some very very interesting uh, things with sort of the delay reveal aspect to that collection. Mm -hmm. So they're really pioneering. You know, I think that I think the whole delayed reveal kind of thing exists all with NFTs on Ethereum. But they really kind of pioneered that aspect within their collection uh, through the quantum cats. So they've already sort of transformed one time, which is is pretty cool. There aren't too many collections that sort of have that dynamic aspect to them. And from what I understand, there's several more, um, you know, transformations. We'll call them that are that are yet to come with with hidden surprises. And I believe the way that they achieved this was by using opcat to sort of, you know, create this dynamic sort of art, um, which is just really unique in terms of everything that they're trying to do in terms of pushing OpCat as a new opcode in, in Bitcoin and trying to demonstrate some of what, uh, you know, that opcode could allow for in, in, in terms of use cases. So um, I, I'd say it's one of the most technically innovative projects out there, um, you know, in the space. And, you know, Far is also a, a great artist who, you know, he's he's done really amazing work and, and has some very, very cool collections, um, you know, just out there as an individual artist. Yeah, so that, how did they, how are they able to change the, do you still call it metadata? I mean, that's what we call it on ETH NFTs. How, how are they able to change that? Is that complicated or? From what I understand, it's pretty complicated. I don't, I don't know the exact, like, technical underpinnings of, what allows it, but it is, I'd say it's, it's pretty equivalent to like changing the metadata effectively. Um, mm -hmm. and so, you know, the art isn't sort of permanent, but it's sort of like pointing to something almost external that they're able to sort of change, um, in order to have the art, you know, um, transform effectively. 
Uh, Brandon, I dropped a link in the chat. This is a, this is something I own that was kind of a cool project called Recall by an artist I like named James Bloom. But this one reacts to the mempool. And so it's constantly changing how it looks based on that, which is kind of cool. And um, so it's like it's like another example of a dynamic. Ah, uh, uh, yes, I've seen this project. This this is awesome. Have you? Yeah. Is that because Crash Blossom is uploaded enough? Like the four megabytes must be enough to let him upload an entire scripts that generates the the image i guess I, I think that's right there's also um something new in the, in the ordinals protocol um called, like endpoints so you have things like sat endpoints which effectively let you reference other pieces of data um that is basically stored um already on bitcoin this is also sort of how recursion works as well but there are a couple other artists that effectively use these endpoints to create dynamic art based on things like you know, if there's a new block that's solved, the art will change based on the block hash or do other very interesting things. And um, there's sort of like no limit to the type of endpoints that you could theoretically create. Um, I believe that, you know, you, you could use in reference to do interesting things or create these very interesting experiences. We've even seen people kind of use recursion um, to create like games on chain or, or other sort of interesting dynamic um, new sort of experiences. So that's a whole new avenue um, that honestly hasn't been a part of the, the Ordinals protocol for too, too long. Um, I want to say it got introduced maybe last summer, like summer 2023. Um, but that's also creating, you know, opening the doors for new interesting art effectively to be on chain. I love it. So were you ever, when you first heard about inscriptions, were you ever like the hardcore laser eyes, like anti-inscription or did you just immediately like it? I think it was cool. Um, I'd say I'm, I'm generally pretty open-minded of a person. So at first I was just trying to understand like, how, how is this even possible? Um, and, mm -hmm. and once I got a better understanding of kind of how it worked and that there wasn't like anything actually wrong with Bitcoin, I got more excited about it. And being a miner, I was already kind of excited for what this could mean from a fee perspective, you know, just looking at what, you know, the NFT market, the size of that, you know, on Ethereum and sort of what that did for ETH in terms of adoption, you know, I was, I was, I was pretty excited about what that could look like for Bitcoin. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I immediately just, so there in the early days, it still exists, but it was called the Hordacord, which was the discord community for, um, the ordinals protocol. So immediately went and joined that to kind of learn more about what was going on. And right at the time that I got involved, which was like, I was very fortunate in terms of discovering this, like late January. And so right around that time, I saw, you know, people started to inscribe some of the first collections. So there were like the rocks that came in ordinal punks. And a lot of people started, you know, promoting and selling, you know, those early collections through the order cord. And it was all OTC at that time, you know, no infrastructure existed. So you had to kind of get a trusted escrow to sort of facilitate some of the commerce, but kind of rolled the dice on buying you know, a couple early inscriptions just to kind of understand this and be a part of, you know, the space and what was going on here. So it's very fortunate um, to, to ultimately roll the dice there, I guess, you know, be a little bit of a degen, but that's kind of how these things ultimately, uh, you know, just kind of kicked off and, and and got started and just grew from there ultimately. Now, are you a strong believer that earlier is better or how, how do you feel about that? I mean, I think that um, there's there's definitely something unique and interesting about, about uh, the inscription numbers. Um, one, you know, I think it, it just kind of, 
is this almost like intuitive thing that like lower or early is 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 generally a good thing being early is a good thing um so i think that that probably carries weight um but it's also just about the ethos of i, I think the space um in those early days um you know mm -hmm. what was super interesting about that time was just you know all the commerce was facilitated over you know spreadsheets literally like you know spreadsheets managed by community members for you know the bids um and, and offers and it was just sort of this unique moment in time where just pure excitement pure excitement and fun and joy and meeting other people that wanted to be sort of on the cutting edge of trying this new thing and when i think about early inscriptions it's really about the essence of those early days and what it meant to be inscribing in those early days and kind of being in the trenches with all of these other people trying to understand and figure out what all of this meant and what it was. That's cool. Yeah, I had something similar with the uh, NBA Top Shot. I was an alpha user or whatever. And so uh, we had it all on spreadsheet. Pranksy had a spreadsheet and you would just DM him and he had like the market price for everything because they hadn't opened their marketplace yet. <laughs> and so I was buying, you know, I'd send them 0.1 ETH and he'd send me a Luka Doncic or whatever. It's pretty funny. It is fun that way. You know, it's like, you don't even know. You're not even sure any of this is going to have any value. You're like, I don't even know what I'm doing really, but it, no one ever robbed anyone. Like everyone trusted each other to some degree and it worked out and it was a real small community and yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Usually that stuff works out. I mean, uh, it definitely worked out with that if you, unless you never sold them. But, um, so it's funny. I was looking at the, uh, the other day I was just going through each inscription, like on the, the Explorer. So you have zero, you have one, you have two, and I would just click through and like somewhere early on is like a really nasty, like pornographic picture. But like a lot of them are just these stupid, like some of them are bored apes. Like some of them are just like random ass mm -hmm. things, but they're like really early. And, and like yeah. number 80 is probably some random ass one. And so, and then you start getting what, what's the first project? And I had a question. So for Magic Eden or some other marketplace, how does it know what a project is? How does it know what to include in, an, in a project? Do they have, is that external? Yeah. So um, now it might not be, but in those early days, you didn't have the ability to sort of add metadata. Um, and so what collections did to sort of establish provenance was they would inscribe like a, a text or JSON file that would um, basically include the inscription ID of all of the pieces in the collection. And then mm -hmm. you could kind of reference that to know what was actually a part of the collection or who the artist was or the title. Um, there were also some, I forget who the exact person was, but it might've actually been Ordinal's wallet created like a, a GitHub for collection collections to just sort of organize and say like, these are the pieces associated with my collection um, that, you know, other marketplaces at the time could reference to, to, you know, basically help to build out the marketplace. So it was a very much like a, you know, a community effort to kind of help identify and sort of index, you know, a lot of the collections from those early days. But now it's, it's much easier since you can add metadata. And then you have you lied about it. Hurt. Uh, oh, yeah, you can, you can, you, mm -hmm. you, you can do it. You can do live mints now, um, or, or open mints effectively. Cause in the early days they were all kind of pre minted, right. And then, and then offered for sale. Is that kind of how that worked? Yeah. Them were already inscribed and then offered for sale. There were, um, a couple of people like Danny Deasy, who was a real, uh, you know, pioneer in the space that created, um, a really unique sort of minting experience where you would use lightning. So you would basically pay a lightning invoice. And what happened on the back end was it was sort of this just-in-time transaction where your lightning invoice would cover the cost 
of inscribing the actual image file on chain. And then it would, it, you, he would basically it would, uh, it would send to your, um, actual on-chain Bitcoin wallet address, which was really unique, um, at the time and, and, and pioneered, um, a, a lot there and a pretty interesting use, uh, of, of lightning as well to kind of bring that into the fold. So that's how Bitcoin frogs are actually, um, minted. Um, that that's mm -hmm. another sort of OG collection out there. Um, that mm -hmm. was, um, one of the early 10 K collections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then has there been a lot of, um, I, I guess, I mean, the volume has been decent on those these days, but like, it seems like there was a little, like when node monkeys came out, it seemed like that was a big deal and quantum cats came out. That was kind of a big deal. Have you noticed the volume is, is maintaining or. Yeah. I mean, I think that for the big collections, I mean, to, to me, I think the biggest collections are really node monkeys or node monks, however you say it. Um, quantum cats for sure. Uh, OMBs big time in the space. Um, and then probably Bitcoin frogs, I think are, they tend to have like the most volume or at least be some of the, mm. the most popular, I'd say PFP images that you, you certainly see on Twitter and within the community. Um, node monkeys volume, you know, pretty insane what they did. Taproot wizards also had really amazing volume. Um, but I think what node monkeys did in such a short period of time was, was crazy. Like I remember watching that mid, I stayed up pretty late for, you know, secondary, just kind of watching things and was just blown mm. away by just the sheer, you know, amount of buying pressure that was sustained for a pretty, pretty long period of time. So you said, um, you said Taproot wizards, I think you meant quantum cats. Yeah. I meant quantum cats. Cause mm -hmm. I was going to ask you what, what do you think? Cause how many Taproot wizards are there? There's not that many, right? 21, 21, 21, 21. What do you think a, a ballpark opening value is going to be when they finally get on secondary? That's a great question. I mean, like looking at the hat's floor price, which is around 0.2, 0.25. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I would not be shocked to see them. I mean, at, at minimum 0.3 at minimum. I mean, I could, it could be as yeah. much as 0.5. I think it all really depends on like, what is Bitcoin price at the time of release? But I think like a good right. is OMB. And so if you look at OMB, which is like 2,100 pieces right now, the floor is like 0.75 or 0.77, somewhere in that range, OMB and ZK. ZK is a, an amazing, you know, creator and founder. Um, I kind of see Taproot Wizards being somewhat comparable to that project, both in terms of size and, and hype and, and level of interest. So I'd kind of look mm -hmm. at that as like a, a floor price potential, um, or at least where secondary, you know, secondary market could ultimately end up being. So one other question. So so let's say like the way Quantum Cats changed their metadata or, or, or image, that was done actively, right? Like that wasn't like programmed in, correct? Um, it, it is, I guess I, I, yeah, that's a good question. I, I guess it is sort of like, basically they, they have the ability to change it when they want. I believe, I don't, I don't know if the, I'm not entirely positive that the time periods in which they're supposed to transform is, is already programmatic and basically built into the code. I'm not sure that's actually the case or not. Cause I'm curious how that, how would that work? Like how, how would they be able to change it after the fact? Like if it's. If I technically own that quantum cat, um, how are they able to change the data that it's pointing to? So if it's referencing some sort of external sort of like, say, data source, they might be able to change that external data source that the, you know, the on-chain information is, is pointing to. So they could host that site or whatever it is that it's pointing to. Right. Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask you about parent-child because I first saw that with Lucrest. Are you familiar with Lucrest? 
Day of the, the Crest. He's an artist. I am not. I'm not. He had a big sale, really big sale of an ordinal at Sotheby's, I think it was. And okay. do you, Pep, do you remember how much it sold for? It sold for a lot. I can try to find out quickly. Yeah, I wanted to say, anyway, let's say it's 50 grand or something. It's a lot of money. And uh, he did really well, better than expected. And it was a parent, which was the main piece of art. And then the child, I think the child ones were, were given to the bidders, like the top five bidders. Mm. And I didn't understand the, what that meant. What's well, a child parent? Yeah, so parent parent child is is a way to try to establish uh, establish provenance within uh, ordinals and inscriptions. And so basically you can take any existing inscri- uh, inscription that you have and what you can do is effectively inscribe sort of like uh, an entirely new collection that basically points to that original inscription that you had. And so what's what's pretty okay. cool about that is you can create, think of like almost like a tree or a Merkle tree of, of collections. So you could have this, um, you know, like your PFP or say it's like your, your brand or your logo inscribe that. And then you could have um, a separate set of, of collections that all point back to your original sort of brand or logo or inscription, um, which is pretty cool. And all of this is visible on chain. So if you, if you go to like ordinals.com, the primary um, explorer, it'll tell you um, the parent inscription if you know, uh, you're, you're looking at any of the children inscription. Um, and then it's, it's you, know, you can continue to create this lineage over time through all of your collections, which is pretty cool. And um, I think it's another reason why early inscriptions might you know, continue to, to be desirable over time is because they also become sort of this really interesting billboard space. So say you have like a future mm-hmm. collection you wanna do to sort of establish like provenance or even sort of, uh, you know, some level of affinity to being early in the space, you could create a collection, um, you know, have like an early inscription as the parent of a future collection, um, which could be really, really interesting. And you're already seeing some people start to experiment with that. That's what R6 actually did, which is pretty interesting is uh, they have, I think it's like inscription number 126 or 127. And for all of the individual R6 miners, they all are sort of inscribed as children to that early parent inscription to sort of establish, you know, OG status effectively, you know, within the space. Mm. That's cool. That's cool. So like uh, the ETH equivalent would be like if Mebits pointed to CryptoPunks or something or yeah. mm-hmm. that's, that's pretty cool. So so I, I didn't get any R6. Somehow I was robbed, but I did get, uh, I do have three wallets eligible for room stealth. So let's hope that those move. I don't really know what they are. Do you know anything about room stones? I think uh, room stones is Leonidas's project. And, yeah, and correct. Um, effectively, it's supposed to be like basically open community project, um, sort of commemorating um, all of the early participants in the ordinal space. Um, so that should be really interesting. Um, We'll, we'll see how that project evolves. Um, I mean, I'm really excited for like rune season. It almost feels like we're, we're entering into rune season now, like R6 really kicked it off. And I think what they did was super innovative in terms of how they went about the airdrop and even how they're creating sort of the gamification mechanics around a future allocation of tokens to, you know, the, you know, to the runes protocol once it goes live. And we're now seeing lots of other people kind of experiment with this concept. So you'll have Rune Stones, you have, um, what is it, Rune Guardians is another one that was airdropped oh, yeah. to um, certain collections, and there's Genesis Runes as well. 
I suspect we'll see a lot more. But what's pretty exciting is um, a lot of the earlier kind of, you know, uh, popular collections in the space are getting these airdrops, getting these these early, you know, allocations. So it's it's been pretty cool to see some of the, you know, early stuff kind of get rewarded. And, you know, who doesn't love free money at the end of the day? I love free money. Not the best side. So totally uh, not investment advice, but um, if you're looking at the early collections, super early, like sub 10,000, what are maybe two or three that you would definitely want to own like in 10 years from now, you think? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'll, I'll break it down kind of into, I'll, I'll try to be like, break it down into sub 1K and sub 10K. I think um, okay. of the sub, of the first 1,000, you know, Bitcoin rocks definitely is an interesting one. It's sort of the first, com- the earliest inscription collection that was fully inscribed. Um, so that's an interesting one. And it was inscribed by Rock Toshi, who, you know, super OG in the space um, and has has done a lot of amazing and interesting things. Um, and then you also have, I think Ordinal Punks are really interesting because it's the first PFP collection um, that was created by Flowstang. They were minted and sold for 0.01 BTC and really have the highest inscription sale um, in the space, which is 11 and a half Bitcoin, one sold for OTC. There's a lot of I'd call them, I guess, ETH whales that were early collectors of that inscription. So you have people like Dangalang and, and 888 and a bunch of other, you know, I'd, I'd say pretty well-known people that own um, those. And there's only 100 of them. Uh, so that's that's a pretty interesting one. And I think that there were the last sale for that was like 3.9 BTC. So they're, they're still, um, you know, pretty coveted. Bitcoin yeah. shrooms, for sure. Um, definitely an, an, an interesting one just because of, you know, it's original art, the, the nods to Bitcoin, Bitcoin culture, super interesting. It's, it's sold on Sotheby's and, you know, there's a lot of notoriety around that one. I think, um, one other collection in sub one K that doesn't get talked about enough is the Dan files, um, which is sort of a series of sub collections scattered throughout the first 1000, that one, um, image that you called out, I think it's, it's, an image of Goatsy that that Dan actually inscribed um, is is a part of it, but it was really interesting because that inscription really helped push forward the conversation of how do we go about, you know, sort of um, like censorship in a way, right? Like if we have inappropriate things that are going to be inscribed on chain, we need to have a way to manage that. And um, Dan kind of putting that out there help really push forward that conversation very early and to force the space to kind of get ahead and think very strategically about how we were going to kind of manage that, how we we're going to censor certain content and, you know, kind of keep everything, you know, PG, I guess, 13. Um, but that's a really interesting one. And, and Dan is a, mm-hmm. a super interesting creator. I think Inscribe Pepe is also really interesting one that's in sub 10K. Um, the Inscribe Pepe team, is phenomenal they've done a lot of interesting things they have, have the little peepos collection which was the first um i think collection to be inscribed entirely on rare sats and so they've they've been big pioneers and innovators in the space um and then there's some really interesting art collections so ord rothko is in the sub 10k that's a, a glitch art project um if, if if you're looking for early art there's also pline air which is another early art collection sub 10k which is all like natural landscape uh pixel 
um, art-based, uh, pixel art-based collection. Uh, I think people like Paz with Ordinal Faces, super dope PFP collection that's in that sub 10K range. It's a glitch art PFP collection, very limited supply. Um, and then you also have, you know, other creators like Sanj um, with Fomoji, another dope early PFP collection. And um, I throw out there like Bitcoin Booze did some really interesting things too for distribution. Uh, what was really cool about the Bitcoin Booze was you had to, in order to actually get the inscription, you had to identify it um, as they were being inscribed on chain. You basically had to be the first person to identify it and like post the inscription ID in a Discord chat to claim it, which I thought was pretty cool. So you had all these people just staring at the oh, wow. pool refreshing consistently for for that opportunity but those are some of like the early og collections that i think you know just the story behind what they did how they did it um is 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 super unique and interesting what was the rothko one again i was trying to find that on magic Eden. it's uh ord rothko oh yeah cool i found it um nice yeah the floor is 2.1 of course a lot of these have like no volume on chain at least on these sites that's hard to know what they're really price discovery is very up in the air right yeah. now but uh oh in one one last one you should uh I, I was just gonna say quickly check out um ordinal loops that's another really dope one for for um on-chain art that was sub 1k they have um two collections that are coming so they inscribed a, a second collection um that pays like basically homage to like different major moments in bitcoin uh, sort of history that is sort of expressed through um, animated art or dynamic art. It's all ASCI art, if, if I'm saying that correctly, um, which is pretty interesting. They did a, a dope collab with Rocktoshi and created the um, uh, Rock Loops, which are pretty cool as well. Um, and then lastly, they have an Open Mint collection that's actually going to be coming um, soon that I think um, will be, uh, it's, it's supposed to be their attempt at expanding you know, um, access to, you know, the art they've, they've, uh, introduced. And I think that's actually launching next week, but they're a good one to check out. And they also donated, uh, 10 to, I think it was like 10 to 20% of all the proceeds from their early sales to, um, different Bitcoin, uh, development projects or, um, other philanthropic efforts, which I think is pretty noble of those guys, but yeah, just wanted to give them a shout out too. That's awesome. And you know, you know so much about this. I love it. So Part of the problem I have, I think it's just too early, right? Like if you are a collector and you're interested and you try to go on Magic Eden, and you can't really even, there's not much discovery of these projects, right? It's really hard to even know that they exist and there's no volume. So uh, what do you think, like, how do you see that panning out in the next couple of years? Yeah, that's, it's it's definitely, a, I think, an existing challenge. Um, one of the things that I try to do, really small effort, but, but I manage the like sub 1K Twitter uh, account and, and whatnot. Mm. And um, I'll, I can try to link it. But what I've tried to to do to just even tell the stories of some of these early projects, because I think there's a lot of interesting history that a lot of people that are new to the space just don't have. And it's it's hard to get to hear these stories and get that context because um, it's not going to be evident in something like a Magic Eden. Um, just trying to provide more like written content to, to help people find things that they might you know find interesting or to learn the context behind certain artists and and whatnot. But I'm, I'm hoping to just see um, more content, uh, more podcasts, more discussions, um, you know, with the artists themselves. So, you know, just more people get, get to hear about like the cool things that they did, you know, kind of telling that story of what was it like to be inscribing 
um, on Bitcoin before we had certain features, right? Before there was parent-child, how did you try to establish provenance? Um, when we had cursed inscriptions, what was that like? How did how did you end up mm -hmm. creating a cursed inscription? That There's so much rich history um, that I think needs to kind of be archived and those stories still need to be preserved and told. And so, um, you know, me running the Sub 1K is just like my small contribution to try to preserve and um, to tell some of those stories at the end of the day. That's great. Yeah, share the link for the Sub 1K if you can. I'd love, love to check that out. And um, man, I have like a million more questions, but I think it's been an hour and a half. We should probably call it. Um, I'd love to hit you up later, maybe do a spaces or something. Do you ever do those? Like, I'd uh, just love to ask you more questions about all this. For sure. I'm, I'm spending a lot of time now in the ordinal spacing community, just kind of following everything that's going on. So more than happy to chat and that would be a lot of fun. Cool, man. Hey, thanks so much, Brandon. Thanks for joining. That was yeah, great. thank you. Really awesome. Lovely to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Take care, guys. All right, take care. Yeah, nice guy. Really nice. And uh, geez, he, he's like the expert on the collecting side. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's crazy that we got a guy who's running this huge mining company and we have a guy who's like maybe the biggest collector in the sub 10K ordinal space. That's one of the cool things about getting through a couple, you know, just staying in the space, even when um, even when it seems drear, like like bleak, like a year ago or whenever, when things look really bad, it's like, I kind of knew enough at that point to know, you don't have to look at it every day. You can maybe do some other things and spend a little bit less time in the space, but like, don't give up on it, you know? Like, keep your head down, keep working, keep doing stuff. And then uh, over, over years, you develop, you realize how small the community really is. And like, you have access to these people that are like leading the space, even though you're kind of a nobody like me like it's crazy even though it's growing and it's exploded from what it was when you got in in 2018 like it's still at the point where if you want to you're able to just directly reach out and it's still small enough then they respond to you yeah, yeah 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 they're actually sincere and i mean uh, yeah it's really cool that's why uh that's why i love doing this pod i mean i, I learned a ton i'm actually gonna i actually want to re-listen to it because there's a lot of stuff i didn't <laughs> you're gonna be giving the list in case i missed any i know but i'm um I don't know, man. I'm I'm bullish on ordinals. It's just it's so early. It's like there's no liquidity really, other than a few of these big projects like like um, cats and node monkeys and puppets. But there's a couple others, but most of them are just like under totally under the radar. And realized about the cats and the way they're doing it is because they're li like they're relying on something that doesn't exist in the protocol yet, and they're like it's now it's going to contribute to the evolution of. Yeah. Like a, a, a B, there's a BIP out there that is almost directly related to the development of the NFT side of things and like a few years ago you can do anything on Bitcoin Bitcoin was dumb and it was just just Bitcoin yeah it may, definitely made me think I, when they were describing that it made me think that the cats are probably worth looking into because yeah. they're they're not like how are they ever not going to be important they're not just some dumb picture on a you know that some like project is going to come and go like they're, they're historically significant by like real important Bitcoin people right yeah, exactly. On face value, they look dumb, but right, there's like, a lot of significance to them under underneath the hood, and and like they're actually funding and what did you say, a fork of Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah, it sounds like a, a future soft fork may include BIP yeah. like improvements to the protocols that directly play into yeah. how they want to run their NFT collection. It's kind of cool. That have you seen that clip from Udi last year? Like the clip of Udi on a podcast. I remember, I remember at the time seeing it and thinking he's right and it's maybe two years ago now and he's talking yeah. about um it's him and peter mccormack and they're, they're talking yeah. about um all of this value is being transacted on nfts and nft related stuff or shit coins and shit coin related stuff and it's all being done in ethereum people people on, on ethereum are buying stuff in ETH, and people on solana are buying nfts with with soul like why wasn't bitcoin at that time 
that like it was this this whole digital economy that Bitcoin mm -hmm. was supposed to be the center of. Yet a, a chunk of what was happening had nothing to do with Bitcoin and didn't employ it in any way. And now he's one of the guys that's kind of now been instrumental in trying to change that. Like he's put his money where he's now. Moody is, but yeah. I imagine Peter McCormick's super anti-ordinal. Yeah, I would have thought so. Yeah. It's funny because I followed him early on and I love, I listened to his podcast religiously early on, like when I was first getting started and now I sort of hate the dude. I mean, I guess he's, I guess he's still a positive for the space, but like, he's just so close-minded about uh, ETH and all this stupid. I think it's almost like a character he played. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, one other thought I had, uh, but, oh yeah, I know what I was going to say that, you know, you see these ether rock sales the last few days and they're so fucking stupid and you know, there's always this kind of ambiguity to like, well, what's really the first NFT and what's the first important NFT? Because, you know, you have ERC-721, you have ERC-20s like punks, and then you have all the way back to like uh, the freaking Twitter eggs on Namecoin. And it's like, at what point, like it, it's all kind of nebulous. Like what really was the first NFT and does it really matter? The, the ordinals, the inscriptions thing is, is very cut and dry, right? Like you have inscription number zero. That was the first one. There's no other one that can claim to be the first one, right? And so I think I like that clarity that they have. Yeah, it's true. I was, dying. I was thinking as they were talking about it, like, I guess I kind of didn't really fully appreciate it. Like those numbers, that numbering is canonical. It's like, it can only be the numbering it is and it's all agreed upon. Everyone says that's the numbering and it will never change. I wonder if there are other people that were working on alternative canonical ordering systems that are now like, we didn't get well, yeah, out quick enough. consensus, right? So yeah, like someone else could have been doing something totally parallel, right? And now it's kind of, they're not gonna it's not gonna work out yeah and, yeah, and, and also like the the layer two like stacks or like side chains like counterparty and stuff that'd be interesting to go through in the spaces as well is like how do how do ordinal people feel about rare pepes and counterparty nfts and like, i've seen people argue that ordinals are the very first nfts on bitcoin but then deep rare pepes people wouldn't go with that damn it so you did, you actually just disproved my point because <laughs> there isn't a clear number one right yeah no, it's, it's just there's a clear number one or inscription but yeah rare pepes were way we're in 2017 right so or even earlier maybe so yeah so there's always it's never that cut and dry interesting but i i think i don't think either will hurt the other i think um rare pepes clearly have their place and i think inscriptions will clearly have their place too but um, yeah, it's a good point. What I don't know is like if a super early, but completely unimportant otherwise inscription, like let's say inscription number 832 happens to just be a picture of like a flower or whatever, um, like is that going to have any value? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or well, random copy minted stuff, does it still matter because it was still an early inscription yeah. and it's still kind of like graffiti? Like if you owned graffiti from the Victorian era, it'd still be kind of valuable because it's something you can recreate now. It's like historic. Yeah. Is it that? Is it... Is is it any more value than a, a squiggle on a Victorian pub toilet wall, or is it? Is it actually of of like has it got residual value, long term value? I don't know. A lot of it will depend on when um, when Bitcoin keeps going up in price, and you have all these new millionaires or whatever, and they have Bitcoin to spend. Like, what what are they really going to want to own? Are they going to want to own rare Pepe's? Are going to want to own early inscriptions? Um, are they going to want to own the first uh, whatever's going to come up, the first Rune project or whatever? You know, like I don't know. Yeah, because a lot of what drove huge valuations for NFTs in 2021 was Ethereum people that suddenly had buckets of cash to yeah. drive up the prices of art blocks and stuff. Um, they were but they were both very excited about runes. Yeah, thing I've come away knowing I need to know more about is the runes thing because they, they were both runes. Yeah, for sure. And I don't I don't know I know almost nothing about it. So yeah, same same. We'll dive into that. All right, man. That was awesome.
Yeah, cool. I'll speak to you soon. All right. Yeah, see ya.